Pray that God would be with us then as we open His Word together. If you want to be turning, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9 today. A transitional chapter in the Bible. We're heading into another new year, and it's often the case there may be a desire on your part, if you've never done it before, to read through the scriptures and so many good and helpful reading plans, and I certainly encourage you to do that. But the 12th chapter of Genesis, if you've ever read through the Bible, or certainly Genesis, you know that there are certain points in this book where a transition of sort takes, and really the entire Old Testament takes a decided turn here in Genesis chapter 12 with the call of Abram, or Abraham, and that's what we want to look at in these first nine verses with, that we'll read. But before I do that, in less than 72 hours, we will enter in to 2020. 2020. Just saying that, having been born in 1973, makes me feel really old. 2020. As I look back on nearly 47 years of life, the one thing that continues to strike me about time is that it doesn't really appear to proceed or move forward in a linear fashion. It, it feels like it's faster. And you hear old people say that all the time, and this just makes me sound old again. But it's true. It seems like time doesn't pass in a similar fashion. One year seems to take much less time today than it did when I was a boy. I know that the same number of minutes and hours and days and weeks and months have passed. This last year, my 46th year, than did when I was, say, 10 years old. I know that the same amount of time has passed. What's changed is my perception of time. And that's changed considerably. And it kind of stands to reason, I guess. I read one time, and I think it's true, that one of the reasons that older people think time passes faster is because one year at 47 is a very small amount of time compared to one year when you're 10. When you're 10 years old, one year is 10% of your life. When you're 47, it's about 2% of your life. So it almost makes sense when you even think about it mathematically. A year seems to take five times less time than it used to when I was 10 years old. And you kind of, my mind, as you know, works a little strangely at times. And I like to run the numbers at certain things and don't get Sarah started on how many spreadsheets I've created over the years to track some of the most ridiculous things that one could ever track. But I think about these things and I think about my perception of time. And in one sense, as we're here, and it's the final Sunday of 2019, in one sense, there's nothing special that happens when we flip our calendar from December 31st to January 1st. There's really nothing intrinsically different that happens. 24 hours have passed from the day before, and we turn our calendars from December to January, from one year to another. And so in some ways, I recognize that there isn't anything necessarily special or unique that happens when we change that calendar. And yet, I think on one hand there is. 
I know everyone's wired a little differently, but I think that God has given us seasons and days and weeks and months and years. For many, the changing of the calendar from December 31st to January 1st is a time for consideration and contemplation of the past. And I think that's okay and healthy to a degree. We don't want to set up camp there. We don't want to live in the past. But we do want to learn from it, especially as more and more time is behind us as we grow older. We think about things that have come and gone in our life, things that we never would have anticipated ever would have been there. And then when they were there, we never would have anticipated that they would not be there, but we've experienced both. And time continues to move on. I don't know, again, that anything unique or magical happens. A lot of self-help people and, and people sell a lot of books at this time of year and get rich and we won't want to throw stones at those, but there's nothing really magical about it. Yet I think God has given us time and the ability to measure it. The sun comes up and the sun goes down. And through various times and seasons, that's a little different, but it's, it's routine, isn't it? It's routine. He made the first day and he had the sun, the, the light uh, in the beginning and then it had it at night and he created a day. Can you imagine how crazy and chaotic life would be if we would be around and the reality would be, well, I wonder when the sun's going to go down. Or I wonder now that it's gone down, when it will come up. But God has made that purposefully and routine. And every day the sun comes up and every day the sun goes down. And by that, we are able to measure time. Again, there might be some who suggest that there isn't anything noteworthy about entering a new year, but I believe that there can be. If for nothing else, then being able to measure time and change our calendar from December 31st to January 1st to entering in a new year, if nothing else, is a constant reminder that we are in this thing called time. And though we can do nothing about it, this ever-present, inexorable march of time, we can't stop it, but it reminds us that there is a day when time will stop for us. And we know from the scripture that there will be a day when time will stop for everyone. And there will be no more time. But God has made it so that we can measure these days and measure these times so that we can be reminded that we live in time. Our bodies age, our minds age, our children age. All these things happen. And, and whether our year was a good one or whether there was great struggle in the past year, time moves on completely unaffected doesn't change it at all. It just keeps moving forward. It is this unchangeable reality in which we all live our lives, in our iPhones and our spacecraft and our, our technology of the day, our governments, our education. None of that, none of those things can do anything to stop time. It just keeps moving 
forward. But though, again, we can't do anything to stop it, we can, and this is what I want you to hear today, regardless of our age, regardless what has gone before and come to this point, we can't stop it, but what we can do with time, and each one of us do, is determine how we will spend it. None of us knows how much of it that we have, but all of us have given and been given time. As we stand today here at the precipice of another new year, I want to encourage you today to spend this next year wisely. Wisely. None of us knows whether or not we will see 2021. I don't say that to be dramatic. I say it as a matter of fact. It's almost certain that we won't meet together like this one year from now. I pray, and I pray that we all pray together that there'll be new faces with us a year from now. But I also understand, though I would never, I would wish it otherwise, I know that life moves forward and time moves forward and there may be faces among us that won't be here a year from now. None of us knows. Can't stop time. We can only decide how we're going to spend it. And I want to encourage you today, though again, I would acknowledge and recognize quickly that there's nothing magical about a new year, but there is something that we ought to do continually, and this provides us an opportunity to think about it, is how are we spending this time that we've been given? So with that, I want to strongly encourage you towards a godly life in 2020. A godly life. There's no greater purpose. There's no greater reason to get up in the morning. There's no greater cause for which to strive. There's no greater motivator to all that you do. The desire to live a godly life far surpasses the desire to gain the world's riches, to gain the world's appreciation, to gain the fame of the world or gain ease and comfort. This, the the desire to live godly in this world is a desire that will far surpass any of those others. Those others will leave you empty, disillusioned, disappointed. You may not believe me. And if you don't and you try me and you talk to me 10 years from now and you gain all of this world's riches, I would tell you today, you would tell me I'm right. If that's what you're after, it is a... It is a vision that is empty when you unwrap the package. But godliness, and by that, and that's what I want to talk about today, what does it even look like? What is it to live a godly life? Is it to be a good person? Is it to be identified merely by others as a Christian? Is it to tithe? Is it to not curse? Is it to go to church on Sundays? What is this thing called godliness in the life? Abraham gives us a good picture of this, I think, in the twelve or in the first nine verses here in Genesis chapter twelve, and we want to look at this briefly today. 
as I want to openly, and I pray that throughout 2020 we are all reminded of these things as we hopefully strive to live a godly life in 2020. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward then again, we find seven attributes of a godly life that I want to share with you. And don't worry, I won't take too long with any one of them. So we want to be something of a shotgun approach of what a godly life looks like. And it begins with a twofold call. A godly life begins, number one, with a twofold call. It is a call um, first of all, by God, it is a call from God. Abram was living his life, going about his day, and the Lord shows up and calls him away. And a godly life begins with a call from God. You can't live a godly life without that. According to the scripture, and we have so many different examples from the very earliest days with Adam and Eve after their sin. It was God who approached them, that came to them and came to Adam specifically and said, where are you? And that call that came from God to Adam initiated the, 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 the transaction, initiated the process whereby Adam could be redeemed and made right, looking forward to the sacrifice that God would provide that he prophesied of and spoke of in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. But the, a godly life begins with a call from God. And the first call from God that we receive is the call that we are lost and unrighteous in ourselves. And this is a teaching of scripture and a doctrine of the Bible and a teaching of historical Christianity that is rapidly and has almost entirely seemingly in some places lost its importance. We want to think that we are all good 
But apart from God, the Bible tells us very plainly that we are not. And the Bible tells us we would never seek God. And if we would never seek God on our own, how could we ever expect to live a godly life? A godly life begins with a call from God. Have you had that call in your life? Has God come and spoken to you and revealed to you your separation from him? Has it come to you to where you now understand the reason for your emptiness and your brokenness and your sorrow and the reason that things seemingly just are never enough is because you don't have God and God has called out to you that you need him. That's the first step towards a godly life. And we can't skip over that. It's a call from God. It's what begins the entire process of a godly life. And without it, a godly life simply cannot be lived. So if you've had that call, and if you've had that call and you've ignored it to this point, or you have not submitted to that call, I encourage you that even now, before the next 72 hours transpire, but if not then, soon, That you would give to God the submission of your heart and your life to him and to beg him for forgiveness and to repent of your sin and to be saved and to heed that call that begins a godly life. But not only that, this beginning with a twofold call from God, the second part of this is it is a, a call to God. It's a call to him not just a call from him. The godly life is a call to God. It's not a call to a way of life or a set of traditions or a particular manner of living. That's not what a godly life is. That's a Pharisee's life. That's a life of self-righteousness. That's a life of self-sufficiency. That's a life not based and founded in the freedom and the liberty that is found alone in Christ, that my righteousness is not my own, but it's his. And a call from God initially is indeed a call to him. A godly life is a life that is lived not just checking off boxes, but it is a life where we come to know God. A life that's that's not lived just seeking the approval of others, but seeking the very presence of God. A life that is not interested in the presence of God, of course, cannot be a godly life. So in 2020, may every day be a day where we say, God, I want to live this day in your presence. May we heed that call. And he has called us to this. If you've been saved, certainly God has called you to himself. So first of all, a godly life begins with this twofold call, this call from God and this call to God. Not just, we're not just saved from hell and eternal destruction as wonderful and as glorious and as high enough of a reason to rejoice as that is. It's not just that. It is a call to Christ. It is a call to God. It is a call to walk with Him and to talk with Him and to read about Him and to learn about Him and to be uh, uh, in His presence every day. And if that's not in our life, then, then certainly 2020 will not be a godly year. 
and one year will pass, and where will we be? I beg you and I exhort you and I encourage you to make this year a godly year in your life. You won't regret it. You'll not get to December, the end of December in 2020 and think, I wish I hadn't given God this or that. You won't regret it. If you go seeking the things of the world, you'll be here a year from now in much the same way, perhaps as you are today, seeking blessing and meaning where none will ever be found. Secondly, a, a godly life is a life with, with incredible promise. Verse 2, I will make of you a great nation, God says, and I will bless you and I'll make your name great. The promise that God will make something worthy out of your life. That's an incredible promise. When we begin to understand even begin to understand the privilege that life is. We begin to understand the unmitigated thankfulness to God that we ought to feel that he has promised to make our lives worthy lives. Not wasted. Not, not spent in the same empty routines of humanity, but a life that will be worthy of the fact that we've been given life. One of the greatest fears I believe we ought to have is that we would live a life unworthy of the gift of life itself. Too many people are trying to infuse worth and meaning in their lives through their own efforts and, and rather than allowing God to do what he wants and what he has promised to do, they take the reins for themselves. But listen to what he says, I will make of you a great nation. He does not say, Abraham, I am. He doesn't even say this, Abraham, I'm going to make it to where you can make yourself a great nation. He doesn't say, Abraham, I'm going to give you the tools. I'm going to give you the education. I'm going to give you the power. I'm going to give you the knowledge to make yourself great. He says to him, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make your life a blessing. I'm going to do these things, but too much of the time, and I'm as guilty as anyone in this regard, trying to make something of ourselves rather than just letting God make us who he wants us to be. And that's an incredible promise to live with. My life, however many years I may have in front of me, they don't have to be spent without worth and meaning. They can be worthy because God has promised that he's going to finish what he started when he saved me when I was 11 years old. So many years ago now. It's just as real and as sure and as true to me today as it was then. It just is. It's not a vague memory, a fog where I think I came to know God. I did come to know him that day. And though there have been many things that I have learned about him since that time, they have only served to make me more in awe of him. But it did not serve to make me know him in that sense any more than that day that I met him. And I have this promise from him. 
I'm going to give you a worthy life. And we could flip to many New Testament verses and other Old Testament verses to confirm it. But for time's sake, we just want to look at this. And God has promised him your life is going to be a worthy life. You want 2020 to be worthy? Of the 300 and I guess, what, 66 days. It's a leap year next year. You want every day, one of those days to be worthy? Make it a godly day. Make it a godly year. I'm not telling you to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and to live a good life and to beat yourself up or to to somehow make a resolution that you're going to be more godly. I am encouraging you in that direction and reminding you here that our hope of that is that God has promised us he'll do it. Doesn't depend on me. It only depends on him. Now he looks for cooperation in my heart and my mind and I can resist him to my own detriment and to the detriment of those around me. But if I simply long to live a godly life, I am convinced that God will make it so. That he'll not turn his back on that desire. Third, we notice that a godly life is a life that blesses others. A godly life is a life that blesses others. I will make of you a great nation, he said, and I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that Abraham can be this wonderful man? So that he can be admired? So that he might receive merely the the appraise of men? No, so that, God says, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I think one of the reasons that we miss what a godly life is is because we've got the target all wrong. We think it's about us. Many TV preachers have made a lot of money telling you it's about you. But a godly life is not targeted to you. It's targeted to others. It isn't a life so that you might gain your best life now. It's so that you might bless others so that their lives might be a little better, a little less painful, a little less struggling, a little less without hope because you bring them hope because you bring them Christ. Abraham's life was a life called by God to God, a life of great promise and a life that was about God and it blessed others. There's no room. There's just no room for selfishness in the godly life, none. And selfishness can take a lot of different colors and it can look like a lot of different things. Sometimes it's selfish for us to want to be seen as good Christians rather than for us to be a blessing to others and to God. Any number of things can happen where Satan gets in and twists the motivation. There's just no room for selfishness in the godly life. Our aim must be to allow God to make us the blessing to other people that he intends for us to be. I can think of few things that ought to excite us and encourage us and exhort us to a godly life more than that. I can be a blessing to other people through my godliness. It's not about me. It's not about others being impressed with me. 
It's about me being a blessing to them. Fourth, a life of godliness is a life of obedience. You can't get around it. You can't get around obedience to God if you want to live a godly life. It sounds simple, but you would be amazed at how often we stumble over this. It says in verse 4 that Abram went. He left. After God called him, he left. And he says in the scripture, as the Lord had told him. A life that not only talks the talk, but walks the walk. Not only has the right things to say, but does the right things. Not only even when, but especially when it costs something. Don't miss this. This this little phrase, as the Lord had said. A life that obeys God specifically is a godly life. A godly life is a life of obedience to God's specific commands in our life. From Scripture, yes, you ought to be searching this. And I don't recall how many imperative verbs there are in the Greek New Testament alone that are just direct commands from God. But there are many. And we have been told in many ways and in many places what we are to do. How we are to live. But not only from Scripture, but when God comes and impresses you with something in your life and He impresses you to speak to someone or He impresses you to give something up or He impresses you to go somewhere or to do anything, it's obedience to Him. Abram didn't just hear the call. He didn't just receive it. He didn't just hear the promise. He went He took one step after another and he went where God told him to go. And he at the beginning, as has been said many times, didn't know exactly where that was. When God calls you to something, many times you're not going to know what the end of the story is going to be. He's not telling you the end of the story. He is telling you the step to take to start the next chapter in your life. And if you'll just take that step, you'll find out that that chapter is going to be beautiful when it's all said and done. Even if that chapter includes suffering and heartache and sacrifice. But you're going to find when you get to the end of the book that God has had your good in mind all along problem is we don't trust him enough we don't walk after him and we don't get up and leave and follow him look it's not ours to take god's commands and change them so that they're easier for us to obey you ever tried to do that god i know you want me to do this but i'm not going to do that but i'll do this other thing that's very similar to that but i won't do that has god ever taken that from you he's never taken it from me never taken it from me and i don't think he takes it from others in deuteronomy 5:32 moses says you shall be careful therefore to do as the lord your god has commanded you you shall not turn aside to the right hand or the left <coughs> when god calls you to something if it's bad news today i'm sorry to have to be the one to tell you but if he calls you to something you have, to, you have to follow him and do what he says to do, how he says to do it, when he says to do it. That's a godly life. It's a life worth living. A life worth the day 
that you've been given. Fifth, a godly life impacts those closest to us. And this is hard stuff to really think about. Verses four and five, Abram went as the Lord had told him. Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed. Abram took Sarah, his wife, Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they'd gathered and all the people that they had acquired in Haran. They set out to go to the land of Canaan. Abraham's godly life was not just a blessing to the, quote, world at large, though it was. God's promise to Abraham that the whole world would be blessed through him came true and is true. But it wasn't a godly life that only impacted the world at large. It was a blessing to those closest to him. It's often easier. It's often easier to influence the unknown stranger across the globe than it is to influence the neighbor across the street or the wife or son or daughter across the room. But a godly life affects them, those closest to us. They see the chinks in the armor. They see the times of doubt. And Abraham is certainly no picture of perfect obedience. We know he's going to stumble many times. He's going to lie about his wife. He's going to do many things that aren't worth mimicking. But here in the beginning, with his call, we see that he takes those that are closest to him. I don't know, many people have debated, and it's not my intention today to answer the question, when was Abraham saved? But no doubt there were times in his life when his children would see him or his friends or Lot or others, his servants, and say, this is not a godly man. And here he is saying, God has told us to move, and we're going to all move. It's sometimes easier to influence the stranger across the globe than it is the one we love who is so near and so close. But a godly life will affect them. And I'll tell you this as well, a godless life will affect them too. One of the things young people are fond of saying when they want to do something, and they say, it only affects me, it's not anybody else's business, and we as adults know that just is never the case. It always affects other people. There's always other people to be considered. But in our young minds, we don't understand that fully yet. And sometimes even in our older lives, we think that our own Christian walk, the godliness of our life or the godlessness of our lives only affect us. And it's just not true. It affects people that God would have us to reach out to that we don't know. And it affects those closest to us. Sixth, a godly life is going to meet with resistance. Just be ready for it. I pray God instills in your heart a desire, God, in 2020, I'm going to walk with you. That's no promise. That's no guarantee because every day you're going to have to get up and repeat that and commit to that again. And we might say more about that in a moment. But just understand that a godly life is going to meet resistance. We, we too much of the time today have come to interpret resistance as meaning we're doing something wrong. It's not true. Sometimes when we meet resistance for our godly life, it means we're doing something right. 
Abram passed through the land in verse 6 to the place at Shechem to the oak at Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Ungodly people. The journey through the, this land or from where Abram was to where he was going, sometimes we don't get our maps out and look at it. We don't even understand that that journey was through the Syrian desert. This was not an easy trip. This was not a vacation. This was not something where God paved the way and he made the way easy. Every step was light and everybody was always happy. And it's in our day, it's not often when we, when we follow God or it's certainly it's not always that every day is just going to end up smelling like roses and our children are just going to be uh, as where we'd love for them to be and happy and content all the time. It's going to be difficult. Sometimes for a church, there's difficult days that we have to go through in order to get to where God is telling us to go. But if we want to be godly together as a church, we've got to go through the desert sometimes and we have to realize it's going to be resisted. It's going to be a difficult way. This world is a difficult place. And this is why the psalmist says in chapter 63, verse 1, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. If those words are on your lips and in your heart, then you are close to a godly life. God, you are the one that I thirst for. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and thirsty land because spiritually... We are in a dry and thirsty land. We are called to a godly life in the midst of unbelievers and scoffers and even those sometimes who will directly resist us and resist to keep or directly attempt to keep us from following God. It's just going to happen. Mike Tyson's famous for having said, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. He's probably right. And sometimes I think spiritually we have a plan. There's a great many of us who fail to live godly lives because we have this plan, but then we retreat from them and give up the first time the world punches us in the face. And it will. It will. When we lose a job, a relationship, a home, health, wealth, whatever that it is, when we face persecution or choices between the easy path or the godly path in life and we just get punched in the face. Often our commitment to a godly life is laid down. But Abram didn't. He kept going. He continued on. Recognize that your life will include days when your walk with God will be met with resistance. Don't live in dread of such days. Don't live dreading them. Just pray for God's strength when they come. Surround yourself. And there's just some practical thoughts that came to me that I want to share with you. So if I read, forgive me if, if it bothers you, but I'm just going to read it. Surround yourself with others who will encourage you to continued godliness, not those who will use those times of struggle to talk you out of a godly life. And there will be people like that. Don't, don't do that. Look at all the trouble 
that it's causing you. Look at the difficulty that it's just just don't do that. Don't don't insist really on this godly life. It's going to be harder. There's going to be people who stand in your way from living a godly life. I I don't make many football analogies. But I've been intrigued of late. It's the national playoffs time of year in college football and Clemson's head coach Davo Sweeney if I don't know if any of you have ever read or heard much about him but he is a man that wears his faith on his sleeve talks about his Christian Christian faith and I can't vouch for the validity of it but on the surface it certainly seems he's driven by it and I've I've been curious and I've been reading more and more articles about him and I read an article in Sports Illustrated and he talked about how they, they talk Christianity openly and he's not apologetic for it really at all. And the college has received many complaints by those who claim to be for the separation of religion and state and those who claim to be for not espousing uh, any kind of uh, religious faith that really are against Christianity when you boil it down. But I was thinking about this, and here's a man who professes his faith in Christ, and he's not allowed to do that without resistance. And I also think here's a man who... Two out of the last three national championships they've won. They've become some of the, one of the most successful college football programs in, 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 in NCAA history. And he's following a Christian pattern. And I, I just stopped and I thought, because again, whether he is or not, I cannot say. But I can say this. The way God says to do things works. It works. Instilling a Christian biblical atmosphere to wherever you are, it will work. It will make businesses thrive. It will make doctors better. It will make lawyers better. It will make uh, skilled laborers better. It will make college football programs better. It will make sales teams better. It will make families better. It will make schools better. It will make governments better. It makes everything better. People throw stones. I've been very intrigued, but it reminded me as I studied this, I thought about him. And of course, recently they've been on the TV a lot with the playoffs. But I thought it's, it's interesting to me that, that our society resists the very thing that has been our success for generations. Throwing out this anchor of the Bible that held us firm in such a place where there was right and wrong, it was understood, and we did nothing less than, I hate to use this example, some don't believe we did. We went to the moon and back because this anchor tethered us even there. We've let it go, and we thought we were going to find freedom and prosper, and, and prosper, and we found nothing but aimlessness and distractedness and our prosperity has created trinkets, iPhones and cell phones and Twitter and these things that distract our minds. I'm not against these things. I'm just wondering, where's the real progress that we used to see? <coughs> Seems like our progress today is relegated merely to entertainment. That's where the latest technology seems to be coming. 
Finally, seventh, a life, a godly life is a lifelong journey. It's lifelong. Seven through nine tells us this. The Lord appeared to Abram, said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east side of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abraham journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Begins with a call from God, the godly life does, and a call to God. But it includes stops along the way, as Abram's did. A stop here in Chechem. A stop here in the hill country between Bethel and Ai and a distant destination still. A godly life is a calling upon the entire life. This is what I want to close with. It's a calling upon your entire life, not just a moment in time or a particular place. It's a calling upon your whole life. Salvation is the beginning there are various stops along the way, each of us, each of which should include us building an altar to God wherever that we are. There's no point on, along the road of life where the journey ends. Not until the final breath is taken in this life does the godly life here end. Not until that moment. Not until that moment. Not a second sooner. But not a second after either. Don't wait to give God the final years of your life if you're young. Don't wait. And if we're not so much younger anymore, don't fail to give your life to God now from regret over having not done so in the past. Wherever you are in your journey of life, begin today to seek God and live a godly life. You can't change yesterday, and you don't have the promise of tomorrow. So the only thing, then, that we can do is live, is to give God today. That's it. It's not complicated. You don't have to have all of the what-ifs answered. It's just today. Just give Him today. And then you know what? Tomorrow, do the same thing again. Give Him that day. And then the next day, do the same thing. Give him that day. And string enough of those days together to where the balance of 2020, it can be said of you, God, I have walked this year with you. And it wasn't a big elaborate plan. It wasn't a big elaborate understanding or a big vision. It was just this reality that God is my God. He's called me from this world to himself. And I'm going to walk with him in this year. And you string enough of those days together. And you know what you end up with? A godly life. A godly life. And I hate to use the phrase. But one day at a time. One day at a time. Each new day is just that. It's a new day. A godly life is one where we string together many individual days committed to following God in the good days, in the bad days, and all of the average days in between. A godly life. It's what I encourage you to. It's what I pray for you. Pray for us together because the, 
as wonderful as a godly life is, a single godly life, as wonderful and beautiful as that is, you know what even is it better? Is a church together, living godly together, not perfect, making mistakes and stumbling, but a heart that still is centered on godliness together. That's what I pray for 2020, for you and for me. Let's have some.